Hey friends, guess what? I've got a new book coming out from Llewellyn Worldwide on March 8th called Heal Your Ancestors to Heal Your Life. This book is based on something I call genealogical regressions because sometimes when I'm working with clients, I go into their past lives and I realize this is not the source event of the challenge. We need to send light and love to ancestors in order to make our lives the wonderful places that we want to be. So I hope you'll check out my new book and stay tuned for class announcements, book signings, and more as March gets closer. Heal Your Ancestors to Heal Your Life coming March 8th from Llewellyn Worldwide. The Healing Arts Program is not intended as a substitute for consultation with a licensed medical or mental health professional. The listener should regularly consult a physician or mental health professional in matters relating to his or her health, and particularly with respect to any symptoms that may require diagnosis or medical attention. This program provides content related to educational, medical, and psychological topics. As such, listening to the program implies your acceptance of this disclaimer. Welcome to Healing Arts. I'm your host, Dr. Shelley Kerr. Hi, dear ones. Today is the 4th of January, and I hope your new year is off to an amazing start. So remember, I'm going to be on Coast to Coast AM tonight in the wee hours, which are actually January 5th because it's in the middle of the night. But if you are up, check it out. I'll be talking about my new Egyptian healing series. But meanwhile, today on Healing Arts, you are in for a treat. We have one of the pioneers of death and bereavement research who's written an amazing book on near-death experiences that I think you're going to love. Dr. Kenneth Doka is joining me on the show. So you're going to get a chance to listen to my recorded interview and as per usual, check out my YouTube channel so that you can go see Dr. Doka. He is amazing and he's really, really well-versed and incredibly knowledgeable in a topic that I think is on a lot of people's minds right now. So blessings to you, dear one, and let's get started. Hey friends, welcome to another episode of Healing Arts. So I have got an amazing show for you today. I have Kenneth Doka, PhD. This is an incredible book called When We Die. You are going to absolutely flip over this content because I loved it. Let me read you Ken's bio. Kenneth J. Doka, PhD, has edited and written more than 35 books on death-related subjects, including Grief is a Journey, 
which came out from Atria Books in 2016. He's a senior consultant for the Hospice Foundation of America, and he gives dozens of keynote speeches a year. Additionally, Dr. Doka was president of the Association for Death Education and Counseling and was the chair of International Workgroup on Death, Dying, and Bereavement. He was a professor of counseling at the College of New Rochelle and lives in Poughkeepsie. Yes, I know how to pronounce it. Um, thank you, New York. You can visit um, Dr. Doka online. He's got his website at www.drkendoka.com. Ken, welcome to Healing Arts. This is amazing. It's a pleasure to be here, Shelley. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. You know, I am super interested in everything that you have in this incredible book. Everybody needs to go out and get this. Oh, um, I did have a friend who passed away many years ago and I, I went to work as a volunteer in a hospice and it really helped to transform the way I thought about death. Mm -hmm. And so I have a ton of respect for what you do. And I was just wondering if, you know, you've had an incredible career, you've, you're award-winning, you've written all these books for professionals. And I was just wondering if you could tell the viewers, how did you get into this amazing work in the first place? Well, you know, very much by accident and certainly not by plan. Um, when I was 23 years old, I was going to school. Uh, I was doing graduate school at the time. And I had to do what was called a clinical experience. And at that point in time, my interest was in juvenile delinquency. So I had the perfect experience lined up for me. Um, I was going to work at Spofford Center, which is where New York City holds its juvenile delinquents. These are the kids who can't be released home. So if you're looking for the creme de la creme of delinquency, that's where you're going to find it. You know, these are the wow. real, real hard cases. And it was the perfect, ex exactly what I wanted and exactly what I was looking for. And in May, um, as I was in the midst of finals and uh, at the end of the semester, I got um I received a letter from Spofford Center uh, from my director, and I thought, oh, this is just one of those letters that, you know, uh, when you come to Spofford on such and such a day, bring this and bring that and, you know, come to this room. I didn't even open it the first day because I was so busy. When I finally had a moment, moment to breathe the second day, I, it, it, was, it was devastating. It was, uh, he said, I'm no longer, I left my position at, at Spofford. I'm no longer there. I'm now um, at Stone Kettering, uh, which is a cancer hospital in New York. And you can come with me to that, or you can be released from your obligations um, and find something else. Well, in a week, there was no way I was gonna find something else, especially in the midst of finals. So I thought I'll just have to grin and bear it. And, um, and as I was going out, going back from St. Louis, where I was going to school, back to New York, where I lived and where my experience was to be, uh, I thought, well, at least the good thing is I'll be working with adults. I haven't had much experience with that. Most of my experience has been with children and adolescents, delinquency, truancy. Um, when he interviewed me, he said, you're just the person we need for pediatrics. And so he put me in the pediatrics ward of a major cancer hospital. Mm. And, um, and I'll never forget my first moment there. Um, you know, I'm a gutsy kid. I grew up in New York. I, you know, did all, all the things you're not supposed to do in New York, swam in the East River, um, all of those kinds of things as a kid. And, um, and that was the one of the few times in my life I actually panicked. And as I walked into the room, I saw all these kids with, um, with amputations, bloated from chemotherapy, skeletal. And I thought, I can't do this. 
Um, and then I just kind of calmed myself down and I said, well, let's try it. You know, it's, you know, it's going to throw your whole schedule off. And it turned out that, um, that I found the work um, after I got, got, got finished with the discomfort, you might say, after I got finished with the discomfort, um, I looked at the work and, um, and I found it um, kind of, um, kind of amazing and, and really, um, really it ended up changing my career. I ended up doing a dissertation um, and, a, and a thesis on, um, on problems of issues of dying children. And, uh, and I found myself in, in the second generation of people in the field. Wow, absolutely incredible. I mean, you know this more than anyone, but don't you think that this Western society has um, a huge stigma over death because we just don't want it, we want to ignore it and just kind of pretend like it's not there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I, I, I don't think we're so much a death denying society as a death avoiding society. We just like to pretend, you know, we, we don't deny the reality of death when it occurs, but we like to pretend it's not going to occur. And, and I think that's one of our, you know, major attitudes toward death and dying. Absolutely. Um, you've got incredible case studies in this book and stories that people are going to flip out over. I wanted to know if you could tell us a few of the stories or one of your favorites about um, people having premonitions of death. Oh, yeah. I mean, there were so many of those. And of course, the most famous and, and um, is Abraham Lincoln. Uh, who uh, who told his his friend and his colleague uh, uh, and and really he, he was a, even a bodyguard of this dream that he had where he woke up in the White House this was toward the end of the Civil War mm -hmm. and he heard people crying and um, and he goes downstairs in his dream uh, to one of the major rooms from his bedroom and he uh, and there's a soldier there and he says um, you know what what's going on why is everyone crying and he says haven't you heard sir the president has been assassinated. And, uh, and in this dream, he looks in the casket and he sees himself. And this was just days before what occurred, what would occur um, at, of course, the Lincoln at, at the Ford Theater. Um, but there's some fascinating stuff, even with Lincoln's son, um, uh, about coincidences around death. Um, Lincoln's son was present at all three assassinations of presidents. Um, in the um, in the in the 19th century, he was there. Of course, he came to the Ford Theater to help his father right before his father died. Uh, he met Garfield um, right before he was shot, and uh, and the same with McKinley. Um, and uh, he was invited to an affair by Teddy Roosevelt, and he told Teddy, "Bad things happen when I'm around presidents, so I'm going to decline." But there's an interesting experience with him too. Um, and that one day when he was a college student, his father was, was just in the White House and um, he was at a train station and the, the audience was crowding in. Uh, I mean, the, the crowd was crowding in on him and he found himself being pushed in front of an incoming train and a hand reached out and, and grabbed him and brought him back. Um, do you remember who that was? No. Uh, it, was his, it was John Wilkes Bruce's brother, Edwin. Oh my gosh, I remember that now, yes. yeah. Yeah, famous actor. That's and weird. Edwin later said that that gave him great comfort after his brother did the deed. Wow. That he at least saved Lincoln's son. 
That is so interesting. It speaks to something you actually do touch on in the book, which I love is, you know, reincarnation and this idea that maybe we are a little bit more um, intertwined than what we may have thought originally. That sounds well, like a lot of karma there working out with them. Yeah, something something's going on, certainly. One of the things that was fascinating for me and, and one of the reasons that I wrote the book was um, a colleague of mine, Terry Daniel, invited me to speak. This was a number of years ago in an afterlife conference in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. And to be honest with you, um, you know, I said, I'm not sure that I'm your person. I'm, I'm very rational. I'm very empirical. You know, uh, this does not seem like a good fit to me. And she said, well, you know, you're, you're an investigator and, you know, tell us what you've experienced and, and people will be receptive. And I thought, it's not really my thing. And probably the only reason I did it was that the conference was in St. Louis where I went to school and I have lots of friends and, um, and the like. So I thought, oh, well, at least I get a trip out to St. Louis. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, and, and I presented and I presented, you know, um, these are some of the kinds of people, things that people have experienced, you know, talk, talked about terminal lucidity and all these experiences we talk about in the book. And I said, you know, here's, here's what we say, here's some of the explanations. It was very, um, how would you say it? it? It was very, not necessarily skeptical, but very even-handed, I thought. And people responded very well to that. And, um, and I thought, and these are people who really, you know, um, were true believers. And, um, and it really made me begin to look at these experiences in different ways. Yeah, there's, um, I, I think though people do appreciate it when someone like yourself is coming to this issue from a rational standpoint with a little yeah. science, you know, and maybe some research backing it up. Talk about terminal lucidity, by the way, because that was really a fascinating part. And I know the viewers will want to hear about that. Oh, yeah, that's that's an incredible thing. And it's, it's you know, and, and again, I would venture a guess that if you worked in hospice for a while, you either experienced it or heard other people talk about it. And it's when somebody who's in a coma, who has dementia, um, all of a sudden um, wakes up prior to death and they're entirely lucid, they're entirely rational. Um, they often you know, give a goodbye message to their family and then die soon after. The most fascinating case, the first case ever recorded about that is recorded in the early, early um, 2000s. Um, and it's in a, an asylum in Germany, where there's this woman, Anna, and we talk about that in the book, who has, um, who's never spoken in her life. She severely has severe intellectual disabilities, what we used to call um, retardation. So she's, she's never spoken. And then all of a sudden, one morning, she wakes up, um, and she sings a coherent song of her own dying. Wow. And, and, you know, the impact of that was so great that the two that the physician, the physician in charge and, and the chaplain of the institution, both of whom witnessed that, later opposed Hitler's euthanasia plan. And they said, no life is not worth living. You know, they had really changed their entire attitudes and, and uh, gave them a courage that, you know, that few people had at that era and at that time in, in Nazi Germany. That's for sure. It was a transformative experience for them. Yes. I'll tell you my my best hospice story. Sure. And see what you think of it, because it kind of touches on some of the things you're talking about in the book as well. It wasn't quite terminal lucidity, but um, one of my patients had supernuclear palsy, which is what Dudley Moore passed away from. So she was 
really intelligent, knew exactly what was going on, but couldn't speak and was having a very degenerative experience. And she was in the living room of her daughter and son-in-law. And so I would go over and visit her. And so I teach a lot of healing classes and things. And so I talk a lot to my healer trainees about the fact that, you know, when we're in hospice, obviously, you know, we can provide comfort, but the goal isn't that we're going to just get up and just go walking down the street tomorrow. So um, I would just spend time with her and it started to occur to me more intuitively that I should, that it was helping her if I would just hang on to her feet. And so one day while I was doing this, it was like the heavens just opened up and she just went, you know, and you could tell that, you know, she was seeing angels, which is something you discuss in your book as well. And well, on another day, shortly before this happened, I had, I had said to her, you know, her husband had passed away and, and I just was talking to her because the family wasn't around. They don't know that yeah. I'm a woo-woo because I'm a woo-woo. Um, I just said, wow, you know, your husband's going to be waiting for you and it's going to be so wonderful. And, and so then it wasn't too long after that, that the heavens kind of opened up. Yeah. And then shortly thereafter, of course, I think she was obviously, as you know, um, she was waiting for a few relatives to come in uh, who hadn't quite made it. And then once they arrived and left, then of course she left. So yeah. There's many, many stories of people who see angels. So I guess if you want to share some of those. And then I, I was also wondering, um, have you become more of a believer in this? And when um, do you think this Yeah, I, 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 you know, I guess it depends on what you mean by believer. Do these things happen? Uh, yes. Um, they all, you know, there's, there's so much proof of them. And there's, there's stories that go back, you know, to the, to the Middle Ages, if not beyond. Um, of these kinds of experiences. Um, so, you know, do you can't, I don't think anybody of any orientation can deny that these kinds of things happen. We can dispute what they mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, but to me, they do give us a glimpse of, of the forever. Um, matter of fact, the original title of my book was On the Edge of Forever. Um, but they preferred to-, to I like to, this title though. Too. Yeah, that's what they preferred, and and they talked me into it. But but you know you yeah. you do catch glimpses of, of of things that have been remarkable, and there are so many stories of uh, of people. Um, you know, I, I have a story of a little girl in there who's looking. All of a sudden, she's dying of leukemia, and she's looking up, and she says, "Mom, don't you see it?" You know, and she says, "There are angels. Um, there are angels all over," um, and she was so excited and she, you know, died later that evening. Wow. But, uh, but it was just this last burst of uh, things. And, and so many of the stuff are remarkable. There's, there's a wonderful story in there, um, you know, just of the kinds of experiences we even have after death. Um, yes. You know, of, of having senses of presence of somebody. And one of the most remarkable that was inadvertently shared with me was I was, you know, talking to some friends um, um, and they have two little children, two younger children. And um, so one of them said to me, well, let Ethan tell you about his dream. So this 10 year old boy comes and I said, what was your dream about? And, and what had happened is he had never met his maternal grandfather. He had never seen any pictures of his maternal grandfather. Um, his maternal grandfather had, um, had separated from um, from uh, grandfather had separated from his wife, you know his maternal grandmother, um, 
years before when, when her mother, when his mother was a little girl, there were no pictures of him in the room. There were, you know, there was nothing. Very rarely was he even referred to because he was such an absent figure in, in their, the lives of the family. And he had a dream and he said, grandpa came to me and he described grandpa um, perfectly well. I mean, you know, exactly the memory and, he, and that had never been described uh, to her um, and um, to him. And, and she said, what did grandpa say? And he said, he said, I, I should be nice to you and be, be careful because this is a tough time. Wow. And, and it was just this remarkable event. And it was, they were debating about moving, relocating to Florida from New York. And, um, and, and it was a struggle as the family kind of looked at the pros and cons of this. Um, and, and Ethan's dream was really kind of remarkable. What was fun about that is um, I asked Ethan if I could share that story in my book. And I said, but don't worry, Ethan, I'll use another name. And he said, no, you can only share it if you use my name. I want to be associated with the story. Yeah. I want to be in the story. That is, it's an incredible one. And you've also touched on um, the near-death experience and the transformations that happened from that. So tell us one of those stories. Oh, well, I mean, um, you know, I, well, I'll tell you the first time I ever heard of it. And that was, um, that was before there was any research on it. Um, and um, and I, I may not get the names right, but because um, I use different names in the book, so I'm just gonna make up different names now than the real people, but I lifeguarded uh, when I was in college. Um, and, well, and, and of course I, I tried to keep my lifeguard to municipal pools because um, they're a lot easier to lifeguard. Um, and, but we have a couple of beaches in New York City where, and one of them Rockaway is very, very dangerous. Um, and um, and it's unusual. It has ripped currents and and tides and you know I don't I don't know if you've ever been to Rockaway Beach, mm. big waves, big undertow, rip currents, all kinds of things that mm. make it um, that make it kind of dangerous. And so one time there was a rescue, and this this lifeguard uh, all of a sudden uh, you know went out to look for this this kid that he had seen. And when he got the kid in, the kid was unconscious, and he started you know, doing mouth to mouth. And, mm -hmm. and um, I don't know if you ever had to do that, but it is not a romantic thing to do. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, you know, uh, stuff is getting regurgitated and uh, it's, it's, it's really probably one of, you know, one of the, the terrible, uh, you know, it's a life-saving event, but it's messy to say the least. And, um, and so when the kid was, um, was, um, revived. So the lifeguard at one point in time just needed to get away from it to clean his mouth and somebody else took over and the kid came to consciousness. And then he said, where's Scott? And uh, for a moment, there was this circle of fear because maybe he thought there was another kid out there, Scott, who he was hanging with, you know, who, who had not been rescued. And they said, what do you mean, Scott? He said, Scott, the blonde lifeguard. And, um, and they said, well, you know, what about him? He said, well, he rescued me. Um, and he didn't want to go in the ambulance before. And he told us that he saw himself, he had this you know, tunnel of light experience. He saw himself um, uh, coming into this and, um, and then somebody stopped him and said, no, um, your mom is crying too much. You have to go back. But as he's going back, he's hovering mm -hmm. over the scene and seeing his rescue and seeing the artificial respiration. And he wouldn't leave in an ambulance until Scott came out. And as soon as he saw Scott walking toward them, 
Uh, he said, that's Scott. That's the guy who saved me. Wow. Remarkable stories. Absolutely. And that was before even Moody put out his thing. And I just kind of, you know, and I remember the lifeguards were talking about it and, you know, well, you know, we're trying to find some rational reason for it. He probably heard people talk. He probably saw this, but, you know, clearly it was more than that. It probably made us a little bit sort of weirded out by it. Definitely. <laughs> anyway, we were just college students. This was like the late 1960s. Yeah, because before Moody put it out, I mean, I'm sure those things were happening, but it either wasn't talked about to that degree. And then, of course, you would think this is weird. I mean, but those things can't be explained. That's the they, they certainly couldn't be explained by us. And and um, and every rational explanation that we tried, well, he must must have heard people talking, you know. Well, OK, but how did he recognize Scott? Right. Or even know his name. I mean, yeah, yeah. There's something going on here, Ken. Sometimes, yes. What about um, nearing death awareness? Oh, that's that's fascinating stuff, and and um, and that's one that I've shared uh, actually personally. And nearing death awareness is is from a, some work, Final Gifts by Callanan and Kelly. They developed the concept just like Mel Moody developed the you know the the near death experience, mm -hmm. and, and what they talk about which is, is, I found is very, very common in hospice care, is where the person who is dying be, is very aware that their death is, is um, imminent. Um, and they talk about it and, and they communicate that in a number of ways, some of which may be oblique. They may talk about traveling. So you have this person who's lying in a bed who you know, can't even get up to the, go to the bathroom and they're saying, I have a plane to catch next week or I, I, tomorrow I have to take a train. Or they're talking about dead relatives. Grandma was here yesterday, you know, and she said hi, you know. Um, and um, but and and then the other one, um, which is the one that I experienced, is where a person just basically has a, an awareness of imminent death. My father was in hospice care. Um, he died a number of years ago, 18, uh, 28 years ago, but on literally a week ago on, on the first of December. And, um, and on November 30th, he woke up Now he was in hospice care. He knew what hospice care meant. And he said, am I dying? And he didn't mean, do I have a terminal illness that's gonna kill me? He knew that, he shared that with all of us months before, but he was really asking him and, you know, and my mother called me up and said, you, you better come out here um, because I don't know what's happening with your dad. He keeps saying, am I dying, am I dying? So, you know, I came out, my, I came from Poughkeepsie to New York City and my, uh, my sister and my brother all came into the house. You know, we all came in and I said, what's going on, dad? And he said, I don't know, I just feel different. And I said, are you in pain? Are you struggling you know, suffering? He said, no, he said, I just feel like I'm gonna die. Um, and so, you know, we sat down with him and we were, um, you know, we, we just really sat with him. We reminisced, we talked with him. Uh, it was a very meaningful day. And, you know, we sent out for supper and, and, and stuff like that. And he ate a little bit and we, and then he said to us, you know, I, I'm feeling better now. So you should all go to sleep. And we still had, all had our bedrooms in the, in the house, you know? Um, yeah. So we all went to our respective bedrooms and, um, and then he died that night. Oh. And my sister was very, you know, said we should have just stayed there. And, you know, and I, I thought about it and I said, no, I think he needed us there. But I also think he needed to die alone. I, I don't think he I don't think he could die if we were still holding on to him. 
but I'm convinced that that's exactly what Callanan and Kelly were talking about. Yes, absolutely. I'm sorry for your loss. That was a long time ago, but thank you. Still, yeah. you know, still affects you, obviously. Um, that's so common, though, isn't it, in hospice that the, you know, as soon as everybody comes in, they say goodbye or whatever, then they need to leave in order for the person to leave. That's pretty common, right? I, I think that often occurs, yes. Yeah. So it's um, it's amazing, and then of course there's you know some fascinating research on the timing of dying. You know, did you did you come across that? Like um, among Orthodox Jews, um, the um, the death rate dips before Yom Kippur and grows after. And there's research that sort of shows that you know. So it's almost like people, and we all have family stories of people holding on, as you talked about it, to a relative coming from a far away or. Uh, or an event. You have a, here's a, just an interesting statistic. You have a much better chance of dying six months after your birthday than six months before it. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm still did. in a good period. My birthday's February. Oh, right. Yeah, me too. Mine's not until April. So it's looking <laughs> good. Even though this has been a weird year, we're going to make it. Um, yeah. I heard, and you can confirm this probably, I thought I heard that like Benjamin Franklin and one of the other founding fathers actually died on the 4th of July or something. Is that right? Actually, actually, um, even more interesting than Ben Franklin, it was Adams and uh, they not only died on the 4th of July, actually three presidents died on the 4th of July, which statistically is very difficult. But the two who died um, on 4th of July on the anniversary, the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence were John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Oh. both of whom were signers. And, and they had an interesting relationship because uh, they were, you know, they were friends. And then during their presidencies, they were very bitter enemies. Um, and then they reconciled later in life and, and, and rebuilt their friendship. Um, and, um, and Adam's last words were, ah, Jefferson still lives. But of course the news didn't come that he actually beat Jefferson. <laughs> That Jefferson had actually died first. Wow. But but amazing, you know, but it's amazing to think that these two presidents who were so instrumental, both were on the committee to draw up. It was Adam's suggestion that Jefferson that um, that that Jefferson actually write the declaration because he wanted somebody from Virginia to write it. And so these people who were so tied in to this date would die on the 50th anniversary, the same day. Miles apart, obviously. Fascinating, I thought. I think it's incredible. There's something here that we can't quite comprehend. I mean, it seems like all of these events are tied in by some um, extrasensory perception, and yet scientists still think that maybe in near-death experience is caused by chemical reactions in the brain. So do you think it's a combination, or do you think it's just all spiritual? Or how well, what I try to do in the book is, is I try to say, look it. You know, and, and I try to do it the same way that I did that lecture, in, in that first lecture that I told you about. And I say, look, it, these are explanations, um, you know, um, mm -hmm. scientific, uh, non-scientific, but these are how people account for them. You have to make up, you have to make up your own mind. Um, as for me, um, I'm not a judgmental type, so I can kind of say, 
I don't know what the hell is happening here. <laughs> Excuse my language. No, well, hey, it is what it is, right? We yeah. don't know. That's right. And we don't, we're not going to know until we get there. Yeah, yeah. But but I'm willing to say these, you know, these events clearly, clearly happen. And, you know, and, and I don't know the reason, but but they clearly happen. Absolutely. So tell us um, your website again, Ken, and how we can get a hold of you. Okay. Um, you can um, you can go to uh, www.drkendoka.com. That's one word, no spaces, no periods, but just www.drkendoka.com. And um, and you know, and, and there's a place there that you can send messages if you'd like to. And um, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the book. When um, for any of your listeners who you know, when they when they get a chance to read it, if they get a chance to read it, uh, it was it was really an exciting and fun book to write. Um, I love it. I love it. I love it. When we die, pick up a copy now. I'll have the links in the show notes. Ken, thank you. Thank you for being on the show. It was a joy and I wish you continued success in your work. Thank you so much. And, and thank you for having me. It was a delight to talk to you. Yeah, it was And great. to talk to your listeners. Mind. Yes. All right, friends. So thanks for joining us today. And we'll see you next time on the next episode of Healing Arts. Stop this. Thank you. We'll be right back. Hey, friends. I want you to check out my Past Life Lady YouTube channel. It has tons of free videos that teach you how to do all kinds of things from energy healing, gem and mineral healing. I've got guided imagery up there for you. So check it out. Just go over to YouTube and type the words past life lady in the search bar and hit subscribe. And I'll look forward to welcoming you over to my channel today. Hey friends, it's Dr. Shelley. If you are experiencing anxiety, depression, or trauma, check out my book, Meet Your Karma, The Healing Power of Past Life Memories. This is a book filled with amazing case histories of clients who have successfully healed their anxiety and trauma, and it has a lot of guided journeys in it designed to help you get through these challenging times. Click on my website at pastlifelady.com, follow the book links, and check out Meet Your Karma, The Healing Power of Past Life Memories today. Welcome back to Healing Arts. I'm your host, Dr. Shelley Kerr. You can visit me online at www.pastlifelady.com. I hope you enjoyed my talk with Dr. Doka. His book, When We Die, is really beautiful, and I think it will help you if you're going through any kind of grief right now, which sadly many people are. So it's a sombering discussion, but it's an important one. So I hope it was helpful and interesting. 
and I've got more very, very amazing guests coming up as we continue our journey of meeting with fellow Llewellyn authors. So join me next time for another episode of Healing Arts. Namaste. Hey friends, it's Dr. Shelley. I have an amazing new book that's being released on May 8th that's called Past Lives with Pets. That's right. Have you known your little fuzzball in a past life? Maybe you have. And guess what? A lot of my clients say yes. And in this book, we will explore the past lives of my clients and you'll have opportunities to take guided journeys and see your own connections to your lovely little furry companions. There's also tons of other exercises to help you recover from the grief of losing your pet. You can meet your animal spirit totems, learn how to communicate with animals, and so much more. So click on the links and check out my new book. You're going to love it. Past Life with Pets, coming out May 8th from Llewellyn Worldwide.